Hebrews chapter 4, this morning we will be working through verses 14 through 16. And one of the great things about knowing the God of the Bible is the joyful realization that He is always, always, always leading us to grace. He is the Father of all mercies. He is the God of all comfort. He enjoys blessing His people with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus in heavenly places. And He delights to fill us with all good things, even earthly things for us to enjoy because He is a good God and He loves His children. It's easy to lose sight of that when message after message from His Word is hard and convicting and sobering and even threatening as the last two or three from the book of Hebrews have been. But God is not stern with His children without cause. Like every loving father committed to keeping his children on the right path and out of danger. God loves us too much to withhold correction whenever he sees us headed for disaster. The strong currents of temptation require a strong grip of mercy. The author will explain in chapter 12, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Up until now, the appeal has largely been negative. But now the author is seeking to induce his readers toward faithfulness, not only based on what will happen if they reject God's warnings, but what will happen if they embrace God's truth. It's not just God's wrath that should drive us to Christ. It's also His promises of grace. It's not God's impending judgment upon us alone that should drive us to the throne. It is His promises that when we arrive, there will be grace. He's not only our judge, He is our merciful and faithful high priest. And it bears saying once again that as we go through the Word of God and we see some of or we read some of the hard messages God has for His people, like the book of Hebrews, we need to remember that the good news is only very good in proportion to how bad is the bad news. Because if the bad news isn't really, really bad, then the good news isn't really, really good. And the reality is, the bad news really is very bad. It is eternally bad. Missing out on God's plan of salvation is horrible because what He reveals in His Word about what is left for those who reject His pleadings to come to grace is terrible. It's terrifying. And so when we are tempted to turn away from God's truth, when we are tempted to turn away from Christ in the hour of trial, we need to remind ourselves not only about God's stern warnings, but where the warnings are leading us. We also need to remind ourselves about His gracious promises. And here in this passage, there are three things in particular 
that the author of Hebrews would have us remember when we, whenever we are tempted to sin. Three, we might call them three points of encouragement or three truths to encourage your heart to do what is right when you're being tempted to turn away from Christ. Let's look at the first one. The first, if you're taking notes, is Christ's preeminent priesthood. Read with me verse 14. Follow along with me. Therefore, let me just read all three verses to give us some context, and then we'll come back to verse 14. Therefore, since we have so great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The first thing we see here is Christ's preeminent priesthood. He says, verse 14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. And let's just look at this piece by piece in order to encourage our hearts together this morning. He says, since we have a great high priest. Now, why do you think he suddenly goes back to speaking about Jesus as high priest? He's just given us warning after warning after warning of what will happen if, in the face of temptation, we turn away from Christ, if we leave behind our faith in the Lord Jesus. And now he turns to the priesthood of Jesus Christ as a point of encouragement. Now, how is that supposed to encourage us? He referred to his priestly function in verse uh, chapter uh, 1, verse 3, when he says that the Lord made purification for sin. So this is not the first time he's talked about Jesus being our high priest. In chapter 2, verse 17, he mentions it again, saying that he made propitiation for the sins of the people. In chapter 3, verse 1, he calls Jesus the high priest of our confession. And later on in the book, he will devote almost three entire chapters to Jesus' office as high priest. But why is this so important? Why is it so significant to our encouragement to walk in a way that's pleasing to the Lord? Why is Jesus' high priesthood an encouragement to us in that regard? Well, these Jewish believers would have known intuitively the answer to that question because they grew up under the old priestly system. In fact, it was a system that was no doubt functioning at the same time that this letter was being written. I suspect the letter was written before 70 A.D. because 70 A.D. was when the temple was destroyed by Titus and the system came to a close. There would be no more sacrifices after that. There are no sacrifices today in Israel. There is no place to kill the lamb and sacrifice the blood and to take it before God in the Holy of Holies. There is no Holy of Holies. There is no temple. And perhaps one day there will be, one day soon. But for now, the essence of what the author is referring to is described for us all the way back in Leviticus 16, where we find the original instructions for the role of the Jewish high priest. And we're not going to go into all of those details. I'll leave that to a few weeks from now when Joe Oliver takes on the book of Leviticus for us. But basically, the high priest's role was to stand bef between a sinful people 
and a holy God. He was to be the mediator between a sinful people and a holy God. Because of their crimes against God's law, they were all found to be lawbreakers. But God had ordained a way for their sin to be covered, to be atoned for. And so once a year at Passover, on the Day of Atonement, a day that the Jewish people call Yom Kippur, the high priest on that day would enter the most holy place of the temple and sprinkle some blood from the sacrifice made outside the temple proper. He would bring that blood in through the holy place into beyond the veil, into the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant would be, where the presence of God would be, and he would sprinkle some of that blood on the mercy seat, the top of the Ark of the Covenant. In this way, all of the sins of the people were kind of symbolically brought into the presence of God, where God would not forgive them, but God would cover. Kafar is the term that's used. Cover those sins for another year. But as we'll see later in Hebrews, the old high priestly order had its limitations. And as I've already hinted, it could never really take away sins. It could only conceal them for a little while. The high priest was a sinner himself and had to make atonement for his own sins before he could go in and represent the people. But that presented a significant limitation. And secondly, he was only allowed to enter the Holy of Holies once a year. This is not something that he could do every day. You could only go into the presence of God and ask God to forgive the sins of the nation one time a year. The rest of the year, you were not welcome. And thirdly, the atonement he made was temporary. Every year he had to go through the ritual again. It was not sufficient for the sins of the people. In fact, the lower priests had to make sacrifices every day. In fact, several times a day. There were morning sacrifices. There were evening sacrifices. And they had to do this all through the year. They proceeded with no end, day after day, week after week, year after endless year, even on the Sabbath. When Jesus was one time arguing with the Pharisees about his healing on the Sabbath, one of his arguments was, look, the priests break the Sabbath every Sabbath because they're in there working. They're sacrificing animals so that the sins of the people could be covered. And so they did every day. As long as there were sinful people, there had to be a bloody sacrifice because the blood of bulls and goats could only cover sins temporarily. They could never take away their sins. And fourthly, the priesthood was not perfect and the sacrifices were not perfect either. The sacrifices were animals. They're not perfect. They're animals. The blood of bulls and goats... The prophets told us explicitly, could not take away sin. And so everything about the old system had its limitations. Everything about the old system, even though it was ordained by God, had its deficiencies. And the author of Hebrews will argue in a few chapters, that's why the new covenant had to be established, because the old covenant was insufficient. Christ, on the other hand, as high priest 
was perfect. His high priesthood was perfect because he himself had never sinned. And so he did not need to make atonement for himself before he entered into the presence of God to represent a sinful people. And secondly, it was perfect because he offered the perfect sacrifice, not the blood of bulls and goats, but the blood of the Son of God himself. He offered himself. It was also perfect because it was sufficient. It was sufficient to forgive and to cleanse all the sin of all who would believe. He offered a once-for-all sacrifice that was never to be repeated. And that's why when he was finished, he sat down. The Old Testament priests were always busy. They are always busy. It's interesting to note that inside the temple proper, there was no place to sit down. There were no seats. The only seat was the mercy seat, and that's symbolically where God sat. But there was no place for the human priest to sit down. He was always working, always working, always doing something else, making sure the candles were lit, the candle, the candelabra, the menorah. He was always making sure the bread was out, always making sure incense were being burned, always making sure everything was timed, always making sure the sacrifices were done at the appropriate place at the appropriate time by the appropriate people. Everything had to be scheduled. Everything had to function like clockwork, and it had to be going on all the time. There was never any time to sit down. The work continued. And if the Jewish people had their way today, the conservative Jews, they would have a temple this very moment where they would be continually sacrificing animals before God. Why? Because the blood of bulls and goats is insufficient to forgive the sins of a sinful people. It had to be made by a perfect priest offering a perfect sacrifice. Indeed, we have a great high priest In fact, verse 14, we have a great high priest who is passed through the heavens. When the early earthly high priest came to offer sacrifice, he had to pass through three stages, three places. First, he entered the court of men who were sacrificed, where sacrifices were made, the court of where the priest did all of their work where the men could go in and take their animal for their family or for themselves and bring it before the priest and it would be slaughtered. He had to first enter the court of men or the court of priests where the sacrifices were made. And then he had to pass through the holy place where there was prayers and incense. There was the table of showbread and there was the candelabras that lit the room indicating symbolically the light of the glory of God. And then he had to enter through the veil into the third place, into the Holy of Holies. And tradition tells us that they would put bells around on his tassels as he went in. It was such a fearful thing to enter into the presence of God. And tradition tells us also that they would put a rope on the priest's foot. He was not to spend excessive time in there. He was to go in and get the job done and get out. But the bells were for a specific purpose. If he were to drop dead in God's presence because of his own sin, they would have a rope to pull him out. It was a fearful thing to enter into the presence of holy God. 
the earthly priest came to sacrifice, he had to go through three stages or three different places before he could come into the presence of God and offer up the blood. In the same way, the Lord Jesus was no earthly high priest, but one day he proved when in the sight of all the people he ascended into heaven that he was perfect high priest. First he passed through the sky, which the Jews called the first heaven, and then he passed through space, which the Hebrews called the second heaven, and finally into the very presence of God. And he did what when he got there? He sat down. He presented his offering, he presented his own blood, as it were, and he sat down. So when Jesus died on the cross, the very, almost very last words he said were, it is finished, paid in full. There's no more need for goats and bulls and little lambs to be slaughtered day after day after day. The payment has been applied. The debt has been canceled for all who will believe. And so he entered the Holy of Holies, as it were. He entered into the very presence of God, who's sitting on his throne. And he sat down on the throne with his Father, because there's no more work to be done. You see, Jesus is no earthly high priest. He is our great high priest, greater than the angels of God. He's greater than Moses himself. He is Jesus, the very Son of God. Beloved, do you see grace here? Do you see the grace of God for tempted sinners here? When you are tempted to turn away because you feel so guilty because of your sin, this is the issue. When you sense the guilt of violating God's word, God's law again. When you begin thinking, surely God has rejected me forever because I have done it again. I have sinned against him. In those moments, God's message is, remember that I have provided for you a great high priest who has paid the penalty for your sin and now sits at the right hand of God. Don't repeat that sin. Don't wallow in your sin. Instead, verse 14, let us hold fast to our confession. Be encouraged, believer. Be encouraged. Do not allow your sin to take you down. I've given you this illustration before, but it bears repeating. When you're faced with temptation, this is what happens. You face the moment of temptation. You have a decision to make. You will either be faithful to God and trust in his promises, or you will sin. If you sin, you take a step downward. And the first thing that starts happening is you start feeling guilty. Now you have another decision to make. Will you confess your sin and repent of it and be restored and experience the joy of being forgiven? Or will you respond to that guilt by more sin? And if you respond to that guilt with more sin, you'll rock along a little further feeling worse and you'll be tempted again. And you respond to that sin by sin and you will go down another step until eventually you're so depressed 
you're overcome with such guilt in your heart that you'll do one of two things. Either you will become hard and never think about it again, or you will become despairing and want to end it all. You'll want to give up. And that's what happens, beloved. We allow sin into our hearts. We don't repent of it. We, because of our pride, because we feel like we're unworthy, which is pride because the Word of God says otherwise. It's not about your worthiness. It's about Christ's worthiness. And you're robbing Him of His glory when you don't come and have Him do what He died to do. Come and be forgiven. Come and have your guilt removed so that you can walk in the joy of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's what happens. I think that's what was happening perhaps in part to these these people. They were beginning to respond to persecution and the temptations that came with it in a sinful manner. And they were taking steps downward. And the author of Hebrews says, I've got to stop this. I've got to write them some word that will help them understand why it's dangerous to go down this road that they are heading down. Dangerous to take the next step and the next step and the next step. And before long, you're too far gone. And it may be revealed that you were never a true child of God after all. That's a dangerous place to go. But you don't have to go there. That's the message. You don't have to go there. You can deal with temptation by not sinning. And you can deal with sinning by confessing and being relieved of that guilt. You can walk in the joy of the Lord because your sins are forgiven. Why? Because you have a great high priest who sits in heaven having completed his work on your behalf. All you need do is ask, and he will forgive. I can identify with this. It's the most bizarre thing in the world, I think, and it shows the depth of the depravity of the sinful heart. Sometimes I know, um, I know that what I should do is pray and confess sin. But sometimes, you know, you feel like, Why would he ever listen to me? How many times have I come and confessed this again? I mean, I'm 43 years old. How many times have I committed this sin? And I know Jesus died for it, but, you know, surely he's not going to forgive me again. And if I were thinking biblically, I would say to my soul, soul, do you think your sin is bigger than God? Because that's what you're saying. Do you think your sin is bigger than God's grace? Do you see the slap in Jesus' face when we respond like that? We should never respond in a cavalier manner as if, oh, well, I've sinned again, Jesus. You know, you've forgiven me. Praise the Lord. Let's move on. There should be a brokenness. There should be. There should be a sensitivity to the reality of how wicked your heart really is. There should be a crying out to God, have mercy upon me again, the sinner. But one thing there should not be, and that is an avoidance of the throne of God. But that's what we're tempted to do. 
We're tempted just to stay away. We don't want to go there again. We don't want to confess it again. We don't want to go back again. And the author of the book of Hebrews is saying, don't you realize how great is your high priest? He stands or he sits at the ready. He's right there at the throne of God, having completed his work. There is forgiveness there. But you must come. You must humble yourself and come and find forgiveness. Hold fast to your confession. You have openly confessed before the world and the church that Jesus Christ is your master and savior. You have said that you would sooner welcome death than anything that would separate you from Christ. The moment of temptation is not the time to let go of that confession. It's the time to clutch it as close to your heart and as tightly as you possibly can. So let us hold fast our confession that Jesus is the apostle and preeminent high priest of our souls. And so the first grace that we should remember in a moment of temptation, the grace of Christ being our preeminent high priest. His preeminent priesthood is our first grace. Second, we should remember Christ's personal pilgrimage. Look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. This is an amazing scripture. You know, when you're facing a strong temptation, sometimes the best thing to do is to talk to someone who understands what you're going through. Right? We all know what that's like. No one is more qualified to listen and to counsel than the Lord Jesus. He can sympathize with all of our weaknesses because he was tempted in every way that we have been tempted. The difference being he never gave in. He never sinned. I think for many of us, this kind of familiarity between Christ and us feels a bit awkward. It makes us feel uncomfortable to think that Jesus sympathizes with us. When someone says, Jesus knows how you feel, or Jesus feels your pain, or Jesus feels the the weight of the load that you're carrying, we think, boy, it just feels a little uncomfortable. It makes us uncomfortable to think that Jesus sympathizes with us as if somehow sympathizing is an indication of weakness or femininity. But that's not the case at all. We like to think of God as an awesome and transcendent God. And in fact, He is. And it's easier, I think, to think of Him as exclusively in those terms because then we don't have to address the difficulties of His human attributes. It's easy just to think of him as high and lofty and out there. It's difficult to think of what it means that he was really a man. And we're not alone in this. Kent Hughes explains that in the first century, the Stoics believed that the primary attribute of God was apathy. Apathy. The inability to feel anything. They reasoned that if he could feel, then he could be manipulated by others, and therefore he would be less than God. 
the Epicureans, who were also another philosophical group of the day, for their part, they believed that the gods lived between the physical and the spiritual world, somewhere in between, but in neither one. They did not interact with either world, so they could hardly be expected to understand the feelings, problems, and personal needs of mortal men. To them, was God was completely detached. He was like the person who lived in the neighborhood, the neighbor that you never knew. You only knew he was there. But he never came to you. He never offered help. He never offered criticism. He just was out there. It's kind of the root behind deism that eventually sprung up in the, eight, in the 1700s. And similarly, the Jews believed that God was far too transcendent and removed from the nature of man to be able to identify with our feelings. When Jesus came, however, he shadowed those worthless philosophies. I was teaching my class recently in history. Along the way, as we go, we study the philosophers. We started in Greece with Plato and Aristotle, Socrates, and we've moved forward into Kant and to all the other famous philosophers. And it's very confusing to go through and listen to their explanation of where to find truth. And none of them match. They all conflict with one another. They all have different ideas of where truth is or if there is such thing as truth and how to find it or how to get lost in it or whatever it is. And I told the uh, I told my little class a few weeks ago. Let me, let me just summarize it all for you so that you can understand it. Whenever you're talking about a philosopher from any of classical antiquity forward, the only thing you have to remember is this. They were all wrong. They all got it wrong. So it doesn't matter what philosopher we're talking about. To the extent that his philosophy does not line up with the word of God, his philosophy is wrong. And there are plenty of philosophers today, even in the church, there's new philosophies, new ideas about how the church should be run. And to the extent that they don't line up with Scripture, they are wrong. When Jesus came, he shattered all the other worthless philosophies because in him God became man and lived among us. He experienced what it means to be weak. He came into the world as an ignorant child and needed to be taught. He thought and talked like a baby before he spoke like a man. He suffered like we do. He became hungry and tired. He felt pain and grief. He experienced all the things that we experience. And yet he never sinned. I think we all have people that we're drawn to in difficult times because we just sense that they understand us. We all have people I trust in our lives. We know we can always get on the phone and say, Brother, I just need somebody to talk to. We one day, many years ago, had disciplined a brother for a a significant sin. And uh, he repented. Praise the Lord. As most people do here at Calvary, God has blessed so greatly in that regard. But a couple of years later, they had moved on. They, they had moved out of state. They had moved up north. And we were having a big group over the house one day. And the phone rings. And it's this man's wife. And she calls me and she said, Pastor Dan, it's... Tell me your name. 
And I said, hey, how you doing? I haven't heard from you for a long time. And she starts crying. And she said, I just needed to talk to somebody who knows and understands. And so we talked. We all need people like that in our lives. And not everybody fits that category for us. There are some people that we know we would never go to in the day of trial because they jump to conclusions. They belittle us and condemn us. They don't hear everything, so their counsel misses the mark. Or we just come away feeling misunderstood and condemned unjustifiably. Usually, that's not helpful. The problem is sometimes we think of God in that way. We think we're faced with temptation that we don't want to talk to God about because we perceive that he's harsh and unbending. By the way, you know why the Roman Catholic Church goes to Mary before they go to Jesus? Because they have this exact hierarchy worked out. They said, you know, God the Father... He's really, really hard. I mean, just look at the Old Testament, all the people that were slaughtered. You can't go to God. And Jesus is God's son, you know. He was, look at the way he dealt with the Pharisees, you know. I mean, he's not as hard as God the Father, but God the Son, man, he is he mad. And so you can't go directly to the Son. But you know what? If you need to get a message to the Son, nobody rejects their mother. And so go to Mary. Oh, my goodness. What a treacherous path that system leads people down. The whole point here is that the Lord Jesus himself sympathizes with your weaknesses. When you need somebody to understand the pressure that you're under and the temptations you're facing, call upon Him. The word sympathize here means to share the experience of someone. As difficult as it may be to understand, the apostle was actually telling us that the one who is exalted above all actually suffers together with the weaknesses, not the sins, but with the weaknesses of the one who is tempted. The tempted believer. There's no need to shy away from talking to him about anything. He knows how you feel. I think what happens is when we're being tempted, it just feels crummy. I've often said, you know, you can get into the midst of temptation and really do battle with it and come out victorious and still feel dirty, still feel guilty, still feel like I'm unworthy to enter the presence of God. And the author of Hebrews is saying, that's a lie. That's a lie from the pit. That's a lie from the evil one who will do everything in his power to trick you into thinking that God will not welcome you before his throne. That the Lord Jesus is angry with you and he doesn't want to talk to you right now. It's a lie. In music, there's something called sympathetic resonance. If you have two pianos, for example, in the same room and you strike the note on one, the same note on the other instrument will begin to respond in kind. 
You ever heard that? It happens not only with pianos, but with other instruments as well. It even happens if you're kind of in tune with it to things in your house. There's a, a big metal star in, in one of our boys' room hangs on the wall. It's made out of sheet metal. And if I walk in there and hum a certain tone, that thing starts ringing back at me the same tone. It's kind of neat. <laughs> My kids go, what are you doing? <laughs> no, I don't know if they've ever seen me do that, but uh, I try to sneak around and do those kinds of things, you know. Um, <laughs> it's called sympathetic resonance. Whatever the note is that you're chiming, the other instrument is chiming back. Uh, here's another example. My son was just telling me he's studying guitar with a, with a fantastic teacher. And I think it was him, or maybe it was one of the guys here who showed him. No, it was one of the guys here. It was Jeff who showed him that uh, you take a tuning fork and, and ring that thing the proper note, and, and put it on your guitar, and guess what will happen? That same note will find it, its place on your string, and it will start ringing. It's called sympathetic resonance. And I think it's a beautiful illustration of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, a relationship that the author of Hebrews wants us to fully understand, but one that we shy away from. When we cry out in weakness and in anguish, Jesus' heart resonates with us. He's been there himself. He knows exactly how you feel. The amazing thing is, unlike any other person who may know how you feel and may sympathize with you, but they have no power to do anything about it, but the Lord Jesus is powerful as well. He is omnipotent, and he is omniscient, which, by the way, throws a whole new thought in here because he already knows the sin, or he already knows the temptation. The problem is not that he doesn't understand or know. It's not that he's waiting for us to come and inform him about something that he doesn't understand or know. No, he already knows. He's just sitting there waiting for us to come, to come to him to tell Him, to communicate with Him, to fellowship with Him, and to bring all our needs before Him. In fact, the reality is that the Lord Jesus has suffered more than any of us. Jesus suffered more from temptation than we ever will. We talked about this several weeks ago. He suffered more from temptation than we ever will because he endured it to a greater extent than we will ever know. C.S. Lewis wrote this. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. That good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only though... Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it really is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in to it. You find out the strength of the wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives into temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. And that is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. 
We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who ever never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. He knows how you feel. And he has felt far worse. He has experienced temptation that far exceeded anything that we have ever felt. We know very little about the anguish of soul that Jesus experienced. In chapter 12, the author of Hebrews reminds them of this, kind of puts it all in perspective, and the author rebukes his readers with these words. He says, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood in striving against sin. But that couldn't be said of Jesus. He resisted until his blood was shed unto death for us. And so we should not shrink back from him when temptation strikes. You think you're on a difficult pilgrimage? You have no idea. You have no idea what a difficult pilgrimage is. The Lord Jesus' personal life His personal battle against temptation was more fierce than anything we can know. And so we should not shrink back from Him when temptation strikes. To the contrary, we should run to Him and cling to Him and pour out our souls to Him in the moment of temptation, knowing that He sympathizes with our weaknesses. He knows how you feel. When we ask for help, He will not upbraid us. He will not turn us away. To the contrary, chapter 7, verse 25 says, He always lives to make intercession for us. That is, the Lord Jesus, while He's sitting on the throne of God, is always praying for us. Do you understand that? When you're in the midst of difficulty... The Lord is praying for you. You remember way, 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 way back when we were studying Mark together? How many of you were above 12 years old back then? We came to that part of the text where Jesus puts his men in the boat and they say, Jesus, you coming? He says, no, go on without me. I'll catch up. And he sends them out. They didn't know that a storm was coming. He did. And so he pushes them out into the water and they start rowing. They get halfway across the Sea of Galilee and the storm hits. Where's Jesus? He's on the mountain praying. And I think that's the perfect picture of what it's like for us when we are facing a storm in life. Where is the Lord Jesus? He's always, always, always making intercession for us. And sometimes he even comes off the mountain, walks out on the sea, steps in the boat, and the storm goes away. But he lives to make intercession for us. He's not only eager to receive our prayers. When we go to him, we find that he is already pleading our case before the Father. It's as if we have to interrupt his intercession on our behalf in order to speak to him. But he says, you do it. You come to me. Come to me. So when we're tempted to fall away, when we're tempted to take that next step into guilt and sin, away from the glory of God, away from a walk in the Spirit that pleases the Lord, away from a life that that honors the Lord Jesus Christ, 
when we're tempted to do that, we must not only remember God's threatenings, but his tender mercies as well. We must remember Christ's preeminent priesthood and his personal pilgrimage. And finally, we must remember Christ's precious promises. Look at verse 16. Therefore, he's wrapping it all up. In other words, this is what I've been trying to get at all along. Therefore, let us draw near. You see these two verbs here? Verse 14, let us hold fast. How are we going to do that? Verse 16, let us draw near. How? With confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Brent read earlier, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. The Apostle Paul wrote, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. He'll provide a way of escape. He is there to enable you to escape. Maybe not escape the problem, but escape the temptation. Remember yesterday I was out west of Abilene with my boys and with Pace out at the Moorhead Ranch. We were hunting turkeys. Don't worry. Uh, turkeys won. Hunters nothing on this round. <laughs> and uh, somewhere along the way we had just killed a rattlesnake. And uh, we're picking it up. We're going to bring it back and uh, show the kids the rattle when we got home and and I was so focused on this rattlesnake, you know, I'm holding this rattlesnake, and it's still kind of, you know, looking like it could do damage. And my, my mind was so focused on that, I didn't realize I pulled off my mask. When you turkey hunt, you wear a camouflage mask that covers your face. Some of us, it makes, look, makes us look better. But it, I pulled it off, and my glasses went with it, but I was so focused on this snake that I didn't realize my glasses had come off. Or I, I, I just checked out at that minute and thought, well, I'll think about that another time. About five hours later, I went to, um, to study, sent the kids out to hunt, and I looked for my computer, grabbed it, and said, oh, I've got to get my glasses. Couldn't find them. I started tearing that house apart looking for them, tore my car apart looking for them. Pace said, I bet they're out in the field. Where'd you go? I said, man, we went everywhere. We walked for miles. And I started to get anxious. Lord, how am I going to preach without my glasses? People are going to be distracted. They're going to say, he looks funny without his glasses. <laughs> and what's worse, I'm not going to be able to see very well. I'm going to have to bump this up to 24-point type. <laughs> and anxiety started to set in. And I thought, huh, I'm being tempted. I'm being tempted to sin. And I better be careful or I'm going to sin with my mouth. And I began to pray, Lord, you don't have, I don't have any, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You don't have to give me my glasses back. I understand that. You may want me to look more chic than I already do. Get a new pair of glasses. I don't know what your plan is right now, but help me not sin with my mouth or my heart. Help me to trust you. This was great. So Pace said, you need to go out in the field. Maybe you can find them. And I thought, there is no way. 
So we went out, me and Andy went out and looked and trying to trace our steps back. We went to the place where we killed the snake and we started walking back to a place where we had stopped to take a picture of him holding this snake, right? And uh, on our way back, I stepped over my glasses and didn't realize it. And Andy, uh, walking behind me, and he, his foot went over the top so that they made a crackling noise, and he thought it was another snake, and he jumped. And I said, what's the matter? He said, oh, I found your glasses. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, Lord, that was impossible. You didn't have to do that for me. Why does God do that for us? Why did he do that for me yesterday? I think he did it just to say, I love you. I care about little things like your glasses that you could have gone the next day and had replaced. I would have provided for that. He loves us. He takes care of us. And he calls us whenever we slam up against a moment of temptation to come and call upon me. My favorite verse of scripture in all the Bible, I think, is Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give you all things? You understand the logic of heaven? If God has given you his son and did not hold him back... I mean, there isn't anything of greater value. He will not hold anything back that you need. And so come to Him. In the moment of trial, come to Him. Remember His precious promise that with the temptation, He will provide a way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. Many of us never have the strength and resources to battle temptation because we never ask for them. I really think if you can let this sink in, this is so important. I find this to be true in my own life and I'm battling it in my heart. The worst thing I can do in the moment of translation, uh, trans, what am I trying to say? Temptation. <laughs> the worst thing I can do in the moment of temptation is nothing. And I guess the worst thing after that is to sin because that's what I'll do next. If I don't battle it, if I don't go to the throne of grace... If I do nothing, if I don't cry out for help, I will sin. I will sin. But many of us never ask for strength and resources to battle the temptation. And James says, you know why you don't have? Because you don't ask. You have not because you ask not. Is God required to give you everything you ask for? Yesterday we were sitting out under a tree and I said, Lord... You say we don't have because we don't ask. I know you don't have to give, but we'd sure love to have a turkey. And you know what he said? Not today. Now here's your glasses. Why does he call it the throne of grace? So let me back up. When you read world history, it's interesting. You discover that most ancient rulers were unapproachable by the common people. You couldn't just walk into the throne room. And that was the truth in uh, Old Testament history as well. You couldn't just trounce in to the Holy of Holies and say, God, we need to talk. Couldn't do that. You shouldn't do that now either. Remember Queen Esther? Why did she say, if I perish, I perish? 
because she knew that she was not welcome in the throne room unless she had been invited. And if she walks in there unannounced or uninvited, it may very well be that the king will lop off her head unless he extends the scepter, which he did, and we know the end of that story. But we see a bit of the culture there. And the author of Hebrews saying, if you're a child of God, his throne is never like that. It's always, always open. When Christ took our place on the cross, God's throne of judgment became the throne of grace for all who would place their trust in him. Why does he call it the throne of grace? Because to God's children, grace is freely dispensed from the place where God rules. Again, the truth here is that we do not have to be afraid to come and ask for what we need. If you are in Christ, then He is eager to receive you into His presence through prayer. So don't shrink back. Don't hesitate. Rather, let us draw near. Let us draw near. It's interesting to note that the term for draw near was used in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. It was used for the priestly approach to God in service. When it talked about a priest coming into the temple, it talked using this technical term, he would draw near, and it was a fearful thing. And the present tense emphasizes that the privilege here is always, always, always available. Let us draw near. God's door to his throne room is open. The temple veil has been torn in two from top to bottom. There is no partition blocking you from entrance anymore. And so let us draw near. And confidence refers to free and open speech and bold frankness. There's no place for disrespect in front of the throne of God, but we are invited to come to him without hesitation, without tentativeness. In humility, yes. In brokenness, yes. But without hesitation. Oh, how different this is from the kind of fear that the high priest faced year after year when they entered the holy presence of God. John Calvin wrote these words. He said, The basis of this confidence is that the throne of God is not marked by a naked majesty which overpowers us, but is adorned with a new name, that of grace. This is the name that we ought always to keep in mind when we avoid the sight of God. The glory of God cannot but fill us with despair. Such is the awfulness of His throne. Therefore, in order to help our lack of confidence and to free our minds of all fears, the apostle clothes it with grace and gives it a name which will encourage us by its sweetness. It is as if he were saying, since God has fixed On his throne, a banner of grace and fatherly love toward us, there is no reason why his majesty should ward us off from approaching him. He's absolutely right. And the reason that we so often fall into temptation is because we don't go to his throne. If you belong to Christ, don't be reluctant to approach his throne. 
Even when temptation is bearing down on your soul, especially when temptation is bearing down on your soul, come to him and he will welcome you. And notice what he is ready to give. Two things. Mercy, which is sufficient for all our past failures. You say, you don't know how much I've failed. You don't know how great God is. No matter what you've done in the past, mercy is sufficient for all of our past failures. And not only mercy, but notice, we will find come confidence to the throne of grace so that we will find mercy and find what class? Grace. Grace to meet our present and future needs, all of them. And notice, too, that it always comes in our time of need. That is, the help is always appropriate to the time. It may not be according to our timetable, but it will be according to heaven's clock. His mercy and grace are always perfectly timed. And that's important to remember when you're praying and it seems like God's not answering. It's comforting to know that He has promised to answer and He will do it at the perfect time. Trust Him. Sometimes sin and temptation provoke us to draw away from the throne of God, but when we're faced with the prospect of sin, the throne of grace is exactly where we need to bow. And God invites us to come to Him there. So, beloved, are you facing temptation this week? Maybe today? Did you face it this past week? You'll likely face it tomorrow. You probably even face it today. Remember, beloved. Resisting temptation becomes easier when we trust in Christ's priesthood, remember his pilgrimage, and cling to his precious promises. He is the God of all mercy and the Father of all comfort, and he is eager to apply the price that he has paid to your temptation today. The power of the gospel is for you. If you're an unbeliever, that's certainly the case, but if you're a believer... The same grace that saved you many years ago is the grace that will empower you to walk in the Spirit today. Trust Him for His grace. Let's pray.